Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. It's Roscoe here, just introducing today's episode. Yes, we have a very special guest. It's the one and only Mark Hensby. Mark played on the PGA Tour for a number of years. He has so many stories, so much great value from a mental mastery perspective, and just so many insights into his world as a professional. It's an ongoing world. He's still out there playing, and uh, it was a great opportunity for me to catch it back up with Mark and for Jamie to catch up with Mark, and we hope that you really enjoy this podcast with Mark Hensby. Thanks for listening. We really do appreciate it. Check out the mentalmastery.com.au website. Jamie's just released a new website, mentalmastery.com.au. Go and check out some of the great work that we've put into that website. I'm sure you'll get a lot of value in that. Love to see you over there. But today, enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream. The show dedicated to fun, practical mental performance strategies for your golf game. Join mental performance coach Jamie Glazier and co-host Ross Flanagan as they discuss how to manage your mind in one of the craziest sports there is. Well, hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. It's Roscoe here, your co-host, joined by Jamie Glazier up there on the Gold Coast. Jamie, how are you? Welcome. Very well, Roscoe. Very well, thank you. It's uh, a little bit uh, Melbourne-like today, a little bit cloudy, a little bit cooler, but um, I'm still in a T-shirt, so I certainly can't uh, can't complain. Well, thanks for rubbing that in uh, <laughs> once again. Uh, our special guest uh, that we have that we'll introduce in a second, He's he hasn't caught up to um, all of the banter between you and I, you being in the Gold Coast, me being in Melbourne in a hoodie still, seems to be yeah. 24 months of you know, being in a hoodie. Anyway, we have a very special guest joining us today, Jamie, which uh, yeah. very special for me on a number of fronts because not only a great golfer, a great representative of Australian golf at the professional level internationally, but someone who I have a connection with right back to my early junior days in Cessnock, New South Wales. What about you? When you think about Mark Hensby, what uh, what's your recollections of Mark as a young man, Jamie? Oh, look... Um, I think Hens was was sort of playing on the PGA Tour and and the the nationwide back then or the Nike Tour when I was sort of playing my golf and sort of going through being an elite amateur and I think the thing that I loved about my memory of him was just he did things his way he was sort of just came from his own sort of journey did things his own way and and it was just really cool to see you know that that someone was was going through golf at the world stage in a different way to what most people might perceive you would get there and um it was just it was so so cool to watch and then just the, the journey the development um in his career his story and just recalling that you know an hour or so ago when I was doing a bit of research for this podcast I just the journey that he's been on is phenomenal and this is a podcast that I am super excited about getting uh getting out there and as we spoke about before Roscoe I think there's going to be multiple episodes with with Hens because he just has so much to offer. Um, and Mark, firstly, mate, thank you so much, not only for jumping on the podcast, but for being such a valuable member of the Mental Mastery private Facebook group. The amount of times you've chimed in and given us some insight, your thoughts and some advice to to the members of that group, mate, that that is has been phenomenal. So I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for joining us today. Well, we should we should welcome Mark. Mark Hensby, sitting over there in Texas, USA. How are you, mate? Are you, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's my pleasure to obviously be on. And uh, as uh, Jamie said, it's it's really fun to watch and help the amateurs try and clear their their mind a little bit and make it a little bit easier for them. That's for sure. I definitely, you, you know, you can see when you have commented and put people, I guess, somewhat at ease. You know, the, the, what they're facing uh, in their own sort of mental game development isn't you know unique to them and you know you playing golf at the highest level have experienced and continue to experience or, or whatever way you've articulated it but I think it's really put them at ease that what they're experiencing is okay but we can keep working on it and get better hey Mark let's let's talk about uh, let's give everyone a little bit of an introduction into you because I think what I gather from the people who you know join us on the podcast and join us in the in the private Facebook group you know we've got a definitely a younger group of golfers you know they're trying to experience um, growth in their game and through mental performance um, improvement. We've got guys at our vintage, you know, that have been playing the game for a while. And then we've got this whole mix of newer golfers. And probably some of them, you know, definitely know you, but some of them wouldn't, you know, have followed your career, you know, going back 
um, as much. So let's let's go let's go way back and yeah, you know, just give everyone that little bit of an introduction into when did golf become a thing for you up there in Tamworth, New South Wales, and and what was that those formative years like as a young golfer trying to develop and craft a way with a vision of being a professional golfer? Yeah, I mean. Uh, I'll try and make this as, as you know, a summary, obviously, because there's a lot more to it than just uh, than just going back um, to when you first started. You know, I started golf when I was 12, and and it was just really quickly how I started. I, you know, a kid up the street, we played rugby, and then went up. And he said, "Hey, you want to play golf?" And I said, "Yeah, let's go." So anyhow, we played nine holes, and he had a left-handed set of clubs, and I made a birdie for my first ever round with a left-handed set. Obviously. Lefties weren't a big thing back then, so I, we started going every Sunday after that. And then, to make a long story short, you know, by the time I was fourteen, I think I shot seven under in Cessnock. As uh, you know, at fourteen years old, within two years, and I won a few junior tournaments. So, so I had a knack for the game, no doubt. Um, I loved it. I was obsessed with it. And when I say obsessed, I went before school. I went after school till dark, and obviously skipped school a few times just to to practice. I, I had an obsession with it, and and people may say that you know you know you you, you can practice too much this and that. I, I I never saw it as that way. I just had an obsession of practice. I obsession hitting a golf ball, and and you know it wasn't easy in town because they weren't really fond of juniors. So you know I had to deal with a lot of membership issues and and, and stuff like that. So you know it was all not a gravy train, that's for sure. Growing up as a kid, and obviously. You know, uh, as a kid, you do things wrong. And, and uh, you know, I, used, I remember I used to get in trouble playing from the back tees every morning. Um, there's no one there. But I wanted to play the golf course as hard as possible. And I wanted to play as long as possible because I couldn't reach half the par fours at that time. And I'd get in trouble off the members, you know, or, or the greenkeeper or whatever it be. But they just I, – I didn't think they understood a kid who was just trying to be as good as he could be and, and challenge himself and, and enjoy the game for what I enjoyed it for. Obviously – I, I'm sure I did a lot of things wrong, but, you know, understandingly, I was a kid and, you know, trying to be the best I could be. So it wasn't easy growing up in Tamworth. Um, did it help me to a certain extent? Yeah, it made me a little tougher maybe in certain aspects. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of how I started. And, and the journey to America was, um, you know, it was it was kind of foreseen in different routes. You know, obviously I worked three jobs and, and, and did certain things and, you uh, uh, saved up enough money to go to America as an amateur. And, and um, you know, I came over here in 94 and, and uh, just felt like my game w- w- was suited a little bit more over here. I had some success in amateur events and, and I played a state junior team. And I'm probably rambling on a bit here because I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, it's like, no, you, no, you're telling us the journey but, from... That's kind yeah. of how I got to America, I guess. Is, you, know, I, you know, I played some state junior te- I never made a state team, but my my... My goal was always to play in America and, you know, I got the opportunity, you know, and it wasn't easy the first year, especially in America, you know, there was time that people I was staying with left, came back to Australia and, you know, there, there was time where I did stay in my car and it was cold in Chicago and, and you know, I'm sure everybody's read the story. If they haven't, they could easily find it. And and But, but at the end of the day is I never felt like it was a burden. I think that that's the biggest thing is, is you know, I had a ambition of playing the PGA Tour and whatever it took and, and if it didn't happen I was happy to go home and you know people would say well you're never going to make it or people you know we knew you weren't going to make it or but I never really I never really thought about it that way I just had my desire to do what I wanted to do and deal with whatever came after it so um, I, I think that that's that definitely helped me get to where I got to that, that recognition of and desire of uh, wanting to play in the PGA Tour you know do you remember when that came about was that as soon as you started playing golf or you know shooting seven under as a you know 14 year old at Cessnock was that me growing up in, in in Cessnock you know two hours away from where you were we didn't know about the PGA Tour as much or we didn't think about it now we weren't, weren't elite like you we were decent golfers but was that when you were playing in those tournaments as a kid that you said PGA Tour is, is where I want to be and go um I, I think I, I don't think it was – it was definitely a thought. Um, as you know, growing up in Tamworth, I mean, going to the PGA Tour, I mean, I used to watch the Masters, obviously, as a kid and go, wow, how cool it would be to play there one day, you know. Um, I, I think it was probably the goal was to play in Australia, but obviously, you know, things happened from the age of probably 16 with my parents and this and that, and we didn't – you know, I didn't have any money. And so so it was kind of a, 
I kept playing, but it wasn't like a dream anymore. It was like, okay, I'm probably not ever going to afford to do this, but I still enjoyed it and I still did what I did had to do to, you know, try and make it. And then this opportunity came about to come to the States and um, I'd saved up money and I'm like, well, hell, I might as well just go over and give it a shot, you know. So that I, I would say later in my probably 1920 was when I really thought, oh, you know, I, I may be able to give it a shot over there. That was 94 94- you said you, you left? Yes, 94, yeah, 94. Now, prior to us sort of recording here, we spoke a little bit about uh, the young talent in Australia and how great, you know, how great our young talent is and how maybe we don't see enough of them succeed. Now, how much, like, importance do you give those junior days and how tough things were for you in Tamworth and how just tough that whole environment and situation was how valuable that was in preparing you for what professional golf may sort of may have in store for you. Because I have a lot of people that have this really positive mindset to come to see me, almost like a bit of a dreamer's mindset, and they're not preparing themselves for, for the reality of being a professional golfer, the disappointments, the failures, all that sort of stuff. So how much do you think that, that difficult time really prepared you and, and, and created that resilience in you? For sure. I mean, it, it, it's like because nothing was given to us, Jamie. I think that I think that today's kids, and, and I'm not knocking them because it's not their fault. Um, they're pampered a little bit too too much. And 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 you're right. I think that you know, going through those tough times. I know being in playoffs, I I, I knew the guy across me had never been through what I've been through as a kid. So it made it easier for me to compete. There's no doubt. Like I knew that that. I was going to win the playoff and I won five or six playoffs. I think it was, but, but I think it was my attitude towards it. It's just like, I know this guy hasn't been one through. And, and, and as I said earlier though, for me, I never thought of it as rubbing in anyone's face. I just enjoyed the journey. But I think the kids, like we talked earlier is, 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 you know, they can come and get as much information from you and, and, and ask as much questions. But at the end of the day is, you know, if they're searching for for someone to change their life or change something that they're doing or change anything, is go and look in a mirror. <laughs> yeah. It's plain and simple because it's up to you. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's you. I think I learned that young, which helped me. Um, yeah. And and so you know, everybody can get help from everybody, but at the end of the day, is you have to do the work. And, and, and to me, Jamie, the, the biggest thing that's been that I see kids on the range on the Corn Ferry Tour, they've all got these track mans. And once they get their numbers, they leave. Once they get their numbers right, well, they may be there for 30 minutes. Well, that's not creating champions. I mean, that's just not, okay, I understand that, but there's so much more to it than that. Um, and I think the struggles that, as I said, but, but not just me, Jamie, I think that kids growing up through my era was, is, was a lot different. I, I think that, you know, we didn't have everything available 24-7. I mean, we yeah. had to search. We had to do our thing. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I think a lot of the kids could probably benefit from a little bit of that, for sure, for sure. Yeah, with, with the kids these days and, and the young pros, they're dealing with, you know, so many more distractions, uh, external sort of environment is, is pulling them left, right and centre and social media is, is something that is, um, you know, I think has a lot more of a negative impact on on these athletes than what they may be perceiving. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Well, uh, yeah, and their expectations, unfortunately for these young blokes, is, is, and which we didn't have because, you know, you've got to think when I was playing, the average age on the PGA Tour is mid-30s. Yeah. Well, now the average age is getting in the mid-20s to late-20s. Well, yeah. now there's so much pressure on these young kids to perform so much quicker. Well... They, but that's fine. That's that's all almighty. But but the bottom line is, is golf's a game that you can play to. Well, Tom Watson almost won the British Open at sixty. So yeah. so don't rush the journey. Some some people can climb a hill much faster than others. But we all got to climb the hill. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. take your time. Take your time. I, I love that. Don't rush the journey, Roscoe. That that's uh, boy. Yeah. I mean, because you know, ninety four. You go over there. You win. The, is it was it the Illinois Amateur Championship? Illinois Amateur, yeah, yeah. Illinois Amateur, and then how long did it take you to get to the PGA Tour after winning the Illinois Championship? Um, so I won that in '94. I won on the Corn for well, it was Nike Tour back then in '98. So I uh, 2001. So it took yeah. seven years to get to the PGA Tour. <laughs> seven years. Yeah, and again, just 
that whole concept of don't rush the journey have this you know realistic timeline of of, of when these steps you know do take to, to be achieved it's uh it's great so between 94 and 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 getting on to the the, the nike or the the corn ferry it is today but what was those sort of years like in between what were you doing where were you playing yeah, you know, um, I was playing mini tour events for the first few years and then I got on the Nike tour in 97 and, and literally played that through 2000 and then finally finished on the money list in second in 2000 and that got me on the PGA tour. And, and that was, you know, there's so many ups and downs. I mean, that was years that you had. I, I remember my first year on the Nike tour and I can tell this story because it's pretty funny. My first year I made a lot of cuts. I've made a lot of cuts and I'm like, Wow, you know, but I'm seeing, I'm getting beaten by 20 shots. You know, it's like, and I remember at the end of 97 going, I don't think I can shoot these schools these guys are shooting, you know. And and uh, lo and behold, 98, I, I went out and, and I had a couple of good finishes. And I remember one tournament in Lehigh Valley, I got so nervous. I was first time I was in the top 10 and I ended up finishing fifth. And and then in 98, obviously, that, that was the the same year I, I got in contention and, and I was leading with two shots by two shots in the last going in the last round in Fort Smith. And I've never been that nervous in my whole life. And I mean, I was absolutely nervous and, and I was leading Woody Austin and Dave beginning by two shots and I shot 30, the front nine and I won by two. I shot 65 in the final round, absolutely just nervous as hell. And, um, but one thing I found was the more nerves I, or the more nerves I felt, the more focused I got. Yeah. And I know that sounds silly, but obviously I'm nervous. And most people, when they get nervous, they see all the bad stuff. My nerves got into a, a, a state of, and, and every time I got in contention, I played well coming in pretty much, but I, I had this amazing, I, I don't know where, where it was just born in me or what, but I had this really good, I had this uh, gift to be able to focus and and, yeah. and do what I needed to do. I remember birdie in the first two holes that day and I was shaking, dude. I was yeah. so shaking. And, and you know, and that, that was kind of my ride to the PGA Tour to get to 2001, yeah. Yeah, I love that because I think there's two forms of that nervousness or two two ways to, to frame it. I think the performance anxiety is the nerves, the fear, the worry, the concern, and then the performance arousal which is the actual excitement that helps sharpen you know those cognitive skills the focus you know the adrenaline you know really harnessing that so a lot of people have this automatic sort of perception that nerves are going to have a negative impact on performance but you know for a lot of people it goes the other way and, and it's great for you to talk about that yeah that, that definitely helped me I, I feel like if I ever played a tournament where I wasn't feeling any nerves I knew I was not going to perform to my best. And, yeah. and that's interesting. And, and as I said, I've seen guys who were so talented but could never handle that side of it. And, yeah. and it's kind of interesting that and, – and Chris Smith comes to mind. I mean, and Chris yeah. is a really good friend of mine. I mean, he's obviously – you know, he won on the PGA Tour, but the promise that guy had, he yeah. just couldn't get – like he won six times on the corn for, or Nike or whatever it was. And yeah. uh, he just never could get past that. Yeah, yeah, he was a he was a weapon on the Nike tour for those oh. that one year. I think he he led the money list by quite a bit, didn't he? And then uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. But um, first got your PJ tour card two thousand and one. Yep, and I didn't keep it. I played terrible. Yeah, um, I think I had a top ten the first uh, event I played, and I had a good. You know, I had Frank Novello's caddy because Frank was injured first three events, and I made like the first two two of the first three cuts and. And it was doing well, and all of a sudden I couldn't find a caddy, and I got a caddy. But it was funny how it just nothing went right from there, obviously. And and I, I was going through a bad time at home with um, some issues, and not to make an excuse, I played poorly that year, so I lost the card. And then 2003, I got it back through the corner, the Nike Tour again, or I think it was a nationwide. Then I finished seventh on the money list, and and then I, I didn't look back. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty special after that. 2004, one year, one year first. Uh, and I think it's only PGA Tour event. You've only won the one. Yes. Yep. So yep. won that. Where was that at? Uh, John Deere Classic. Yep. In a in a playoff. Yes. Um, and it's funny. My playoffs. I've had. Uh, I, I think uh, I beat Manny Zerman in a playoff in 2000, and I beat Zach Johnson in a playoff in 2003, and then I won that one against John Morgan. Yeah, in 2004. Yep. I then started to look at your 2005 year, and once I started to go through that. 
it's a what an unbelievable year. Like in major championships, I mean, talk to us about that. Like, I, I won't even tell the listeners what what your results were. I want you to um, you know unpack each major as you went along, and what an incredible year. Yeah, you know, I think I went into, you know, after winning the John Deere, my goal was always to win a major championship, you know, and and, and in saying that, I never did anything different. And whilst, what I mean by that is my preparation was the same. I always felt that I played my best doing a certain thing. So even going into a major championship, even though it seems a lot more important, which it obviously is, I never, I didn't do anything different practice-wise, practice round-wise or anything. So, so anyhow, I went into the Masters, finished fifth, um, which was – that was probably the best iron play I'd played in my life. Um, unfortunately, you know, Tiger Woods and DeMarco ran away with that tournament, so it kind of was a – even though I finished fifth, it was a ho-hum. Like, we weren't – no one had a chance other than those two. They, they, they just ran away with it. But, you know, it was my first Masters. Um, I think that, that going back, it was, it was probably the best tournament I've ever played even though I bogeyed the last, which is wrong club and <laughs> indecisive and all that sort of stuff, you know. But do you love and, Ross? Uh, sorry to interrupt, Mark. Do, do you love Roscoe? And the listeners will be, we've talked about this, how you've just discussed your, your very first Masters. Was it your first major or you played the PGA the year before? Yeah, I played the PGA the year before and I made okay. the cut. Yeah. yeah. So, very first Masters, tied fifth in his very first Masters. But he still brings up that bogey on the last, you know, like which we've spoken so much about on the podcast, how golfers just do that. So I just wanted to point that out to to just have the yeah. listeners have that similar similarity <laughs> to, to, a, to a, you know, PGA Tour winner. So that's cool. You know, I, I was it was a funny year because I didn't really do much in any of our tournaments, but my main goal was to win a major championship. So I was trying to get my game ready for those. And, and then the US Open came about and, and that was a funny one at Pine Pinehurst because it was a it was a course I, as soon as I played I'm like I got a chance this week you know and it was it's funny that you have a feeling that like this course really suits me and and I went out played good first rounds so, you know and all of a sudden you know I played Michael Campbell on Saturday and I was too ahead of Michael going into 17 which a lot of people probably don't know and then he hold a bunker shot and then I think he buried the last and I think he was either one ahead of me or, or were tied going into the last round. Um, Retief Goosen and Jason Gore had a, a decent lead, but around there that was never enough. Obviously, that showed the next day. But but that was the one that I felt like I had a chance, you know, going to the back nine. They hit some nice shots. Um, and that's the thing in major championships. You've got to deal with the fact that you're going to hit a really good goal shot and it's not going to turn out. You can hit the perfect shot that you think's perfect and all of a sudden you've got a 10-footer for bow again. That just happens in major championships. So the US Open was exciting because I felt like I had a chance. I finished third. And then uh, going to the British Open, I just finished fourth at the John Deere defending. So I was, I was in good form and I, I, I think I was one behind Tiger after the first round at St. Andrews, which obviously St. Andrews I've never played. I've never played in, in Europe at the time. And, and so I was excited. The tee times make a big difference there, not make an excuse, but we finished 10 o'clock at night, the first round, and then I was off at, I think, 7.58. So it was a really quick turnaround, which a golfer likes because if you're playing well, and I just remember hitting in the bunker on the second on the tee shot on the left and I had to chip out sideways into the high rough and I made a double and all of a sudden, you know, now I think I was five over after like seven holes and just like, man, now I've got to try and make the cut. And uh, going into the last round, I remember playing with Greg Norman which was, you know, I mean, Greg was my idol growing up, playing the last round at St. Andrews in a British Open with Greg Norman. I mean, I mean, he couldn't have scripted it that good for me anyway. And, uh, you know, I had a really good tournament going. I was tied for third, I think, with three to go. And I three-putted, well, when I say three-putted 17, I hit a long left and um, I hit a putt down to about eight feet and, and even though it was from off the green and, and I, I didn't make it and I drove it on 18 and three putted for par. So it wasn't a very good finish, but I finished like 15th and I think at Bolsestrell I made the cut and, and finished towards the end. But I think I had the fourth best record in the majors that year out of anyone. I think the three in front of me were VJ, Phil and Tiger. So, yeah, you know, it was an exciting year. I didn't win one, but it was. I felt like it was close, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those those results and the consistency of it 
you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast and through the courses that we have about sort of cognitive consistency, just creating that uh, consistency in the way that you think, the way that you approach your, your your goal for your practice. And for you to talk about how you like to do the same thing and you know what works for you and you just want to repeat that and then see, you know, see the consistency uh, that that was able to create for you, you know, through your career and, and especially through 2005 is um is fantastic. I think the listeners are really gonna gonna love that insight and how they can create um, that little bit of a concept for themselves as well. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's great. I think it's important that that people realise that even though it's a bigger event, why would you change anything that you do regularly, especially if you've been successful doing something regularly? I think that's important, and, and I see it. I mean, I, I heard uh, Tom Kite's caddy is caddy for me off and on for you know ten or fifteen years now. And uh, he actually won with me in the John Deere. And, and he said, Tom Kite won his first US Open when he couldn't play a practice round because of the rain out. And then he had an outing at one day or, or the Monday. And then it was washed out. So he only actually got nine holes in or something like that. It was something little because he used to play 18 Monday, 18 Tuesday, 19 Wednesday. Yeah. And he never won. But then he finally got to this stage where and he didn't have anywhere near the preparation that he would use. And he won. Yeah. But you know what he did the next time? He went back to doing 18, 18, 18. So, so uh, it, I, I don't know. I, but he never did that during regular events. So why? Yeah. I understand a major is more important, but don't change what's been working. Yeah, yeah. What was, what was your ideal preparation you know, in that year when you think about your prep for all of those majors where you made all cuts in all four, you, you know, top five in the, in the whole uh, major um, finishing? What were your preparation? What was, what was that like? Um, Monday travel, Monday travel day, nine Tuesday, and there's no pro-am, so nine Wednesday. Now, the Masters was a little different because you played the par three. So I did nine Monday, nine Tuesday, played the par three. But, yeah, I just did nine and nine. I, I, and I didn't spend out there a long time out on the, on, at the golf course. You know, I spent, you know, you'd hit a few balls, the warm-up, go play nine and, and just work on a few things and then go home. Yeah, it was, but that's kind of what I did most times. And then when you go home, what does tournament prep look like going home for a, for a? Uh, you know, in the afternoons, it just depends on where you're at. I think you know, it depends on what, where we go for a. You know, for me, I'd like to do something dangerous, but I couldn't because I had to play. <laughs> but you know, it'd be either go to a mall or, or go, you know, watch a movie or, or just something to just clear. You know, get out of. Get, get golf out of your mind to a certain extent. You know, I think it's funny. I went through that phase and I went through a phase later in my life where I was like thinking golf 24-7, which it didn't help me. So, so you know, there's a mixture. Now, in saying that, everybody's different. You've just got to find what works for you. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, and that's what yeah. I, was, uh, I was thinking about. You know, like I see so many people, more so am amateurs that uh, – you know, get so focused on their handicap, their handicap reduction, buying new equipment, all of the, you know, the, the ways that we look for improvement. And and you can just tell that they are golf 24-7. You know, even when they're at work, they're golf, 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 golf. And, you know, I, I always try and, you know, at least articulate in a way that says, you know, find some balance, you know, find some time away from golf, you know, don't think about golf. And, you know, it's it's always a hard concept to, for, for me, not being a, a golf professional, but to try and articulate. So you've just said it there, you know, like some people do it differently and, uh and in saying that, mate, and, and when I'm at home, it's a totally different story. I mean, so golf at home is so, for me, it's so different to golf, tournament golf. It's like, so I have a schedule I write out, um, like Monday through Friday or, or whatever it be. You know, I have a schedule of practice, you know, where it'd be putting for an hour or two hours or, or chipping um, and doing certain drills and, and, and but giving myself breaks in between. And, you know, I might be at the golf course for six or seven hours, but I'm giving myself breaks in between. And, and I've, you know, I was fortunate to meet a guy named Vern McMillan who gave me a great practice. Um, every ball counts. Um, I don't think he's doing it anymore. But, but, you know, so I based my practice on, you know, I'd written out like, through the week what I was going to do but you know so I might be at the golf course for a long time but I'm, I'm present at the whole time and and I think that's important too is like people I practice for 10 hours today but were you present for those 10 hours that's important because if you're not present for 10 hours and you're only present for two well you're really only practice for two hours mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and in saying that is I think you know I had a schedule which I I, I write down and I, I'm going to do that again now because I've got some stuff coming up. Um, but when I'm at tournaments, I'm ready. Yeah. Now it's a whole different ball game. I do what I just said I did yeah, before. It's, just, it's, just, uh, it's more of a 9-9, a few balls this and that because I know where I'm at. 
Yeah. That, that, yeah. I think that's important. Managing and maintaining your energy levels in preparation for, for competition as opposed to I'm grinding to find something or search for something. And Ivan Lendl told me that. Yeah. He taught me that. Ivan Lendl's a friend of mine, you know, and he taught me years ago, listen, when he played tennis, it was grind, 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 Monday, Tuesday, it gradually gets slow, weaker and weaker. And, and so you're yeah. ready, you know. Yeah. And, and I think Padraig Harrington, I know for a fact, he was such a he and, and Fanny Sunderson told me this. She he asked her and said, Yeah, she said, You just hit you practice too much. And she gave him kind of what I just said out, like, you know, and then all of a sudden he won three major championships in what it's four years or something, or two yeah. years or whatever it was. So so it definitely benefited him. Uh, you mentioned Padraig, he's the European Ryder Cup captain this year. Like a lot of us looking forward to the Ryder Cup coming about. You were part of the two thousand and five President's Cup team, surrounded okay. by some of the greatest at the time, some of the greatest that the game's ever seen. You know, golf's traditionally not a team sport, but you come into that team environment. You know, what was being as part of that group in that event at that time like? Yeah, it was exciting for me because, um, you know, did I ever think I'd make a President's Cup team? Never in my life. Um, dreams, yeah, but 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 never at all. So it was more exciting probably for me. Um, and uh, just the whole week was special um i got paired with you know vj in a match um we played against tiger and furic in a match me and appleby um so but i think the the thing i learned from it most is is it's different as a team i think it's very different um the camaraderie is a lot different especially in a president cup to a rider cup rider cup seems a lot more intense Um, i think it's pretty a a bit more at ease in the the, in and out the president's cup you know i i know that week really Playing with Tiger Woods was probably, you know, I, I know Tiger, you know, I've, I've, but I've never played him in a competition round like that. And that was that was a, an awakening to me of just how good Tiger Woods was. And and the pinnacle of golf is, you know, I was 27th in the world, I think, at the time. And obviously, he was, I think he was number one. It wouldn't have mattered how much I – and when I say it was a learning and, and everything, it, it was actually a bummer. And, and why I say that is, is when I saw that, I, I, I just like, why there's no way that it wouldn't matter how much I practiced. It wouldn't matter how much, you know, it, it was, it was really hard because you're like, you always strive to be the best. And then I realized I, I can't compete with this guy. And, and it was the same with playing with Adam Scott. I'm playing with Adam in the last round at, uh, uh, no, the last group on Saturday at the Byron Nelson near one. And I just remember walking off the golf course going, even if I had my best day, it would be really hard to beat this guy when he's on because they just have that extra special gift. So it was a lot of soul searching after that, I must admit. But then I realized this is, you know, you're in it for yourself. And, and at the end of the day, it's, as long as you can be the best you can be, you can hold your head pretty high. Yeah, absolutely. And now that was. That, that was all I could take from that because it was definitely an eye-opener. I mean, you, you strive to be the best you can be at your profession and then you realise, you know, um, it, 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 you, prob- you may have got to where you, you're going to be and that's it, and which I'm proud of. I mean, you know, coming from Tamworth with what, you know, I had to deal with and, and this and that, to be in top 30 in the world was you know, when I look back on it, it's pretty special. But, but at the end of the day is... You know, I think every young kid should be out there or, or anyone is just don't leave any rock unturned and try and be the best you can be and see where that takes you. It may not take you to number one, but as long as you know that you gave it everything and you got to where you need, you know, and, and everybody's got a limit, I guess, at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, that's that's great. I remember the multiple chats I've had with clients through the years where there was this stress and pressure they were putting on themselves because, you know, as you say, it's about, trying to be number one in the world and PGA Tour. And after a while, we sort of backed it back a little bit. And I said, well, you know, what happens if you had a career on the Japan Tour or the European Tour for 10 years and you kept your card there every year and, you you know, you maybe won once or twice in a 10-year career on those tours and you got to travel the world? And I'm like, what would that be like? And they, they sat back and just thought about it for a moment. They're like, it would actually be 
a lot of fun. You know, like you take away the stress of striving to be number one or to, to get to the pinnacle of, of world golf and, and you just give yourself that little bit of flexibility and, you know, they just looked at things in a completely different way and then ultimately the, the, the game changed or improved because of the different way they were looking at things. But as you said, I, I think when you just think about becoming the best player you can be and let that take you wherever it takes you, you, I don't think you can ever go wrong with that that approach or that mindset. No, and that's right, Jamie. I mean, it's like, as I said, not everybody can be a number one player in the world. I mean, it's just not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that you, you know, and, and, and the other thing about this, this is what I found in Australian kids is, is money, they're so money driven. If you're playing golf for money, and, I, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a minute, but I never played for money. I, I, I played because I loved it. And, and that's a big difference between playing for money. Now, I'm going to bring this up right now, and, and I, I don't know where Bradley Hughes is going to listen to this. Bradley Hughes and I played maybe three years ago, and to this day, Bradley Hughes is as good as he was. He hits it as good as anyone. And I said, Brad, Hugo, why are you not playing the senior tour? And he goes, this was his answer. He goes, because I had to start to play for money. And people are like, what? And I go, because he played golf and money came along, but once he – had some issues with his off course, you know, his, you know, some things that was going on in his life. He, he felt like he had to play for money. Well, he said, I didn't enjoy it anymore. I, I, could, I couldn't do it. So, so it's funny that I think money people driven, if you're playing golf for money, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I mean, it's just because I, I said earlier in this cast is I, I was obsessed with golf and, and I believe that's what took me to where I am. And I, I still am. I grab a club every day. I mean, I still enjoy the whole thing about it. It's, to me, it's, it's the most entertaining game in the world. And, and so, so I think that that's a big factor in the young guys in Australia is they've got to understand that this, if you're worried about playing for money, just go get a regular job. I mean, because yeah. it's just too hard. It's just too much pressure on you, way yeah. too much. Yeah. And I think you put a post up on Facebook the other day where, where we're friends on Facebook and I saw it and that's when I reached out straight away because... I can still see, and this is the thing I've admired about you, you know, the, the last few years especially is there is still this burning passion and desire to compete and to challenge yourself uh, at any level. You know, you play mini tour events and you play the, the, the corn tour, you play PGA tour events and uh, your post was about tour schools coming up and, and, and what your plan is for the rest of this year and your career moving forward. So, just give us a little bit of an insight into into that plan coming up and what we can all sort of keep an eye out for. Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm going to do some Monday qualifiers for the senior tour. There's a few mini tour events that I enjoy playing. Well, you know, it's fun to play against the kids, you know. Um, these kids are tremendous players. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They hit it so far and, and this and that. But it's funny, as I, I think I wrote in that post, I played with Davis Riley who just got his card and, I didn't feel out of place at all. I mean, I haven't had the opportunities to play every week on the Corn Ferry. I, I kind of got in that 48, 49 category when, 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 when it was available for me um, and I played. But I played with him and, and I'm like, this kid was like two or three on the list at the time and obviously going to get his tour card. And I'm like, I looked at my caddy and go, and we're kind of looking at each other and I go, do you think that I can't? Yeah. So anyhow, it always... <laughs> As I said, it always uh, I like competing against the best um, available, um, whether it's the kids or whatever. So I'm going to do both Q schools this year, you know, for the Corn Ferry Tour. Um, it's funny, most of the kids are 2022, 20, so it's kind of funny. I'm 50. But I don't feel out of place. I really don't. And I'm going to go to the second stage at a course at Bear Creek where I finished third in a mini tour event out there a few years ago. I love the golf course, so I'm going to go there. And then the senior tour in, in – in December, but I'll have some events in between, like mini tour events. I, I have no issues playing mini tour events. I mean, it's usually a different different uh, kind of atmosphere. And, and, you know, it's funny that that's the hardest part is, you know, you're used to performing in front of big crowds when you did, you know, we're on the PGA Tour playing well, and then all of a sudden it's just... Beautifully manicured courses and great practice facilities. And then uh, there's a few few clients of mine in Vegas that are, that are playing the mini tours that... Uh, you know, after a tournament or after a round, he'll just start with hashtag mini tour life. And I know there's a story of something going on. So uh, moving forward, like, you know, you've got the Corn Ferry Tour School, you've got the Champions Tour School. 
What is your focus point uh, leading up to those? Is there anything you're targeting that you want to sharpen, fine-tune? And, and what part does your mental game play in preparing for these uh, these events coming up? You know, obviously stay in shape because as I think I wrote it, the older you get that things have to be a little bit more, um, you, you know, you have to make sure you're keeping healthy and, and doing the things that you need to do. Um, I do a lot more than just work out and practice, you know. I think keeping your reflexes is, you know, I throw a ball against the wall and catch it both hands and, and you know, um, throw stuff into a bucket both left and right handed. And, and when I say that, I, I kind of look down and then look up, like, you know, just keep everything, you know, as sharp as you can because that's kind of what, you know, the older you get, that kind of goes away a little bit. So, so you know, uh, I think obviously stay in shape. I think the more I can play, the better I'll be off. I'm going to obviously write down some things that I want to accomplish and not just through tournaments, just through practice. Um, and um, but, but the biggest thing is playing. I mean, I haven't yeah. played enough. And, and, yeah. and I think playing is the only thing that can get you sharp. Um, so so, so th- th- that's probably the biggest thing. My goal, obviously, you know, I, I don't usually talk about goals because, you know, they're, they're kind of self. But, but you know, I, I want to give myself opportunity to have maybe two chances to play two different places, you know. I think one would benefit more than the other. And, and as I said, I'm not playing golf for money. So the senior tour, obviously, if you get on that, you know, you're playing for money every week. But... My goal is, is, you know, if I feel like I can compete on a tour that's with less money and it's going to be harder, I feel like, you know, if I can compete out there, that, that to me is, is, is probably going to be my avenue Yeah, for sure. Obviously, Phil winning a major this year and there's been I mean, multiple guys that are, you know, uh, deep into their 40s and, and 50s that are just competing on the main tour. What, what has that done for you the last sort of 12 months or so? Or, you know, did that impact or you already had that? that motivation, that belief that you can compete and obviously you stay, you know, physically super sharp. So, yeah, what impact did, did sort of Phil winning the major have on you this year, if any? Yeah, Phil didn't have any because he's just a super superstar. You know, I mean, that guy, I mean, you can't really gauge yourself on a guy like that. I mean, he's won 40-something times. I mean, now Stuart Sink's another, on the other hand, I played with Stuart when I won the John Deere in the last round. Um, he, I think he's won twice this year. So, you know, I, I, I think... Even before this year, you look at Tom Watson. I mean, even though Tom Watson is Tom Watson, um, you know, to almost, well, realistically, other than a bad break on 18, he wins the British Open, um, which was obviously against Stuart Singh. Stuart Singh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but um, you know, so, so, but I think that as long as you feel, I was fortunate enough to play the Corn Ferry Tour last year, so, or, or this year, I should say, and, and, and just see the talent out there and see the guys who are getting their card, and I'm if I felt out of place, there's no way I would go back to that avenue. But but so, you know, it, it's at the end of the day, as you know, Fred Funk won the Players' Championship at 48. I think Kenny Perry almost won the Masters at 48. Um, we both did the last two. And it was a funny story. I actually asked him about that, if you don't mind me talking about that. I, okay. I, and, and I think that it's interesting. This is a great uh, thing for, the, for all the amateurs out there. Kenny Perry's never lost, really, when he's had a lead. Um, tremendous finisher. And I, I remember seeing him at Scottsdale a few years after he lost the Masters. And, and I said, Kenny, you know, if you don't mind asking, what, what happened? You know, you, you never lost, you know, when you had the lead. And he goes, Mark, this is all he said. I looked on the board after, a, I think he birdied 16 to get a two-shot lead with two to go. And got on 17T and I looked, I was two shots ahead and it's like someone had hold of me. Someone put their arms around me. He goes, I just couldn't move. Wow. And I think if you realise he chip, you know, he had that chip on seventeen, he kind of sculled and then he bogeyed the last and then got beaten yeah. in the playoff. But so that made me realise Kenny Perry that he he was unflappable. When he had the lead, he didn't lose, and yeah. that that got him. So, and this is what he told me after that. He goes, "Sometimes you want something so bad that it, it, that, that it gets you." Yeah. And Kenny's a great friend of mine, a lovely guy. I just saw him a few months ago, and. Um, but that's one of the great stories. I think everybody can learn from it. Doesn't matter how accomplished you are, sometimes the moment gets you. Yeah, and you want something so much, it's just it's too much. Yes, it's so, too much. So, I love too, I, like Roscoe. I love the how you know when I spoke about the impact that Phil winning might have had, and, and the thing I love about Hens and, and what I sort of started the episode with was, I think he knows himself so well and knows not to compare himself against a Mickelson, who is a, an absolute superstar of the game, all-time superstar. Just I think, Mark, 
you know yourself so well and you know and, and you own yourself so well, I think that is such a valuable sort of lesson and, and asset for, for the listeners. And how did that come about? Like how did you just be able to step into knowing yourself and just owning yourself as, as well as you do? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that that I, I just never compared myself to anybody. I always compared myself to myself. You know, I, I went out there and I, I just always, you know, I might be playing with someone, but I was never really comparing myself. You know, I was like I knew what I needed to do to where I wanted to be. And, and I did that through practice. And so I'm not a jealous person. Like, you know, so, so, so when people were doing well, I, I didn't really see it that, you know, I just, yeah. to me, it was just like, I, I think later in life, I, I, I realized that, you know, I can only do what I can do. People are going to say whatever they want, you know, and, and did I, I never let it affect me. I think at the end of the day is, you know, early in my career, maybe a little bit, but I always, I, I was always honest, I think. Being honest with yourself is important in this game because to be honest and understand there's an issue in certain parts of your game, Jamie, I think is that's the only way you can correct them. If, if you've got an ego or you've got, you know, you got this and that, you're never going to – I think you've got to own yourself. You know, you've got to know, what okay, what am, what's holding me back and then try and fix it. And, and a lot of players have trouble with that and I've never had trouble with that. I think I've always been honest with myself in that you know, in that way. So I think that's helped me to where I, you know, I, I don't really care what people think. I, I just do what I do and, and, and roll with it, you know. Yeah. Mark, have, you know, I'm a big one for, especially with younger people, you know, in, uh, you know, having mentors or, you know, having an outlet for someone to talk to that, you know, might have had experience in a certain area or a certain direction or just, you know, in life. Did you have any mentors? Growing up through your golfing professional career, you mentioned Kenny Perry is a good friend. Were there other people that you know you looked up to or, or were able to you know, lean into in terms of experience and mentorship? No, um, I looked up to a lot of players. I, I talked to a lot of players. I think I had a few conversations with Tiger about some stuff, but not, no one that was really influential. Um, okay. No, no, no one really. I ask that because you mentioned you know you're open to to talk to the young the young kids to look out for the young players and you know is that something that you do for them or you know do you would you, are you open to to talk to the guys do you help them at all you know coming through I love, the, yeah I mean I, I reach out to some of the young kids out here and and you know I, I sometimes kids don't want it and which is fine I mean yeah. you know it, it, it's a different world now I, I just think that as a older player that that's my job. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the people today think professional golf is just playing golf. There's much more to it than that, you know. I think it, and, and I'll, I'll run a story to you. About three, four years ago, I played a mini tour event up in Monterey, and and um, we played like I don't know, 21 holes, and or no, 18 holes, and or 17 holes, whatever it was. And the kid said to me, he goes, oh, "I've ever played the PGA Tour," and I'm like, "No, never played it, no." And he goes, oh, okay. And he knew I was older, obviously. So anyhow, the other guy in the group never said anything. And anyhow, the next day after about three holes, he goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I didn't realize, you know, you did this, this, and this. And I go, that's all right, mate. I go, he goes, why'd you tell me you haven't played PGA Tour? And I said, well, I don't have to tell myself. I don't have to tell you if you don't know. To me, it doesn't matter. And why I'm saying, telling you the story is, is the fact that I forget what I said to him, but I said, you know, at the end of the day is I research everyone I play with. Mm. I knew everybody I was playing with. And my history of the golf game is probably pretty high because golf's about, it's my life. Um, and that, that's what I think a lot of the kids are missing today. And it's not that, you know, if someone doesn't know who Greg Norman is as a young kid today, I mean, there's something wrong. I mean, mm. you, you're not research. What are you doing? I mean, golf, professional golf's not about, just hitting a golf ball. It's about learning the game and learning the history of the game and, and in a pro-am is entertaining the guys and this and that. I mean, when I hear guys in pro-ams don't even talk to the amateur partners, I'm like, what's going on, you know? So anyhow, I know I dragged on a little bit there, but but I think that, you know, a lot of the young kids need to do their, their understand that golf's not about just hitting a golf ball. I think there's much more to it and not just for it's not just not recreational or it's just it's learning the whole game learning what golf's about and 
And, you know, I think that the kids today have a tremendous opportunity. The amount of money that they're playing for now is just such a different beast than what we we were for. And, um, you know, if they work hard and they can go so many places now, which, you know, it's it's a benefit and that's why golf's so great right now. Mark, I love that. I love that, you know, you talk about with a lot of the young players now because of the nature of the game, they can have this very linear sort of narrow-minded, narrow-focused approach to the game and but sometimes just opening up your horizons and your awareness of the game and the history of the game and all that sort of stuff is so helpful to their own performance and to them personally. You know, it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic and I, and I know one of my clients who's doing well at the moment, He he's a massive historian, you know, Herbie just absolutely loves the game. Um, he's a, you know, he knows it all, so yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic what you just brought up there. Oh, I, uh, yeah, and I love watching that kid. I don't know him at all. Um, I love his passion for the game. I, as I said, I didn't know he, you, you worked. It's Lucas Herbert, right? Lucas Herbert, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he just seems like he has a an excitement about him. I don't know him at all, which I think he'll bring to the PGA Tour, which is great. I mean, that's 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 what they need. I mean, I've. I, Understandably, it's the entertainment business. I mean, golf's entertaining. I mean, yeah. and that's and and he's. I think he's a guy who's going to do really well. I really did. I was going to ask, and it was on that same sort of topic line of the young ones these days. And you know, we mentioned it before. You know, you see a lot of young pros on the range with a track man, etc. Just get some numbers, and then and then that's it gone. You know, I've just turned fifty. You're fifty. We sort of transcend uh, a great period in golf. You know, that eighties through the current technology now. When we were playing as kids at Cessnock, you know, we were using persimmon blocks and, you know, old blades with, you know, very small sweet spots and, you know, shooting seven, six under and all that sort of thing. What do you think when you hear kids and, and, and young players looking for technology as answers to improvement? You know, having experienced technology back then through the ages and, you know, obviously the modern technology now, can you make an alignment to what I'm saying? Yeah, here's my – I mean, everybody's talking about technology right now again and, and here's my thing. 67, 68 used to be a great score with our equipment back in the 80s and 90s. Um, 67, 68 was a great score. Now 67 or 68 is an average score. What's that tell you? I mean, if that doesn't sum it all up, I mean, and when I say an average score, if you shoot 68 these days, you felt like you left 10, like five shots out there. Whereas you shot 67 or 68 back in the 80s, you probably maybe left one out. <laughs> it's a different. It's just. It's just not the same game. And and I'm going to be honest with you. When you shot, you think about when we were at 15, 16, 17. You you know with the ballada ball or whatever it be. You shot 68. You felt like you accomplished something. Like wow. Now you shoot 68. Like I just didn't play that good. Yeah. And 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 I'm and I'm being. I'm not being. Yeah. 68 is still a good score. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to throw you out of a tournament, but. I just think that you, you know that you left a lot more out there at 68 now. And 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 it's sad, really, for golf. You know, I, I didn't see it. I don't watch golf really anymore. I watch the majors. But um, someone was talking about Bryson DeChambeau and Patrick Cantley. I mean, how far DeChambeau is hitting it right now. But, you know, I went out for wooden wood. I don't know if you saw that on Facebook. Um, and I shot 66 on a, a decent golf course with a wooden driver. Um, the ball just doesn't curve. Even if you miss a wooden driver, it just still goes pretty straight, you know, um, whereas with the bladder ball, as you guys know, it, it went out of bounds. So, you know, I think that Mickelson's story, and, and dang it wrong, I'm not knocking Phil here, but when he said about the, I, I think I just read something about, you know, if they limit it to 46, maybe 46 inches, that, you know, guys are going to get injured, this and that. That's a pretty sad excuse. No one was injured in our time at 43 and three quarters. So I don't know where he's going with that one. Um, yeah. And by the way, how many guys are actually using over 46? Not many. So anyhow, I I think that, you know, the era of golf has changed. Is it for the better? I don't know. Um, I think in general, I think it's benefited the PGA Tour for money, Um, you know, and and people, you may ask why that is. is, You know, the PGA Tour back in, and I'm going to give you a little story here, the PGA Tour back, you know, once they realised that, they're going to make money from TV, they all of a sudden started cutting the rough. Um, so, so their bigger hitters were up on the leaderboards because the bigger hitters were obviously the big names. And then all of a sudden they started making golf courses longer. And, and so now 
you know, the Corey Pavens of the world, who probably are the best strikers and moves of the golf ball are, are literally gone from the game. And now they get the TV ratings up and now they can create more, you know, revenue for the tour. And that's kind of how it is. But, you know, golf's a business now. It's an entertainment yeah. sport and, and that's what people want to see. I've seen Herbie play some incredible golf through the seven years I've been working with him. But the most incredible golf I've seen him play was a peninsula late last year where he used some 1960 Walter Hagen blades and some persimmon woods and played with a, a hangover and I think shot five under around there uh, and just wasn't a Ryan Roscoe play with him. It was the most phenomenal golf I've ever seen him play. You know? Straight from the straight from the, the Nissan GTR to the uh, the tee with a hangover, uh, doubled the first and then uh, shot five under with the Walter Hagens. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, so, and, you know, Jamie, and, and that's the thing is it's like I, I think that the really good players would, disadvantage from using the equipment but i think it would separate the fields again yeah you know the field is so close yeah. i think that if you brought that equipment out again which we're not going to so i know we're talking yeah it's a waste of time even talking but but yeah. it, it would separate it again you know yeah. I, I just don't think that it would be so bunched up but it's I, it's so much like i I, I'm, I play off about seven these days i don't play as much as as i'd like and i've now just got an old set of like mid-90s homar blades that i play with and they're my gamers because they're so much fun to play with and that's why i play golf i don't play golf to have a low handicap or anything like that i play golf for fun and yeah for me it's uh it's the reason why i play and it's just so much more enjoyment out of it for me well and i'm using the the still the blade titleist which is pretty close to what I used as a kid. Um, yeah. And people go, why are you using those? And I go, instant feedback. Yeah. You know what? If I miss this seven iron, it shouldn't be on the green. If I hit it perfect, I know it's going right the right number. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah. Mark, if you put your coach's hat on, you know, and you had a, a handful of young young golfers, where would you be directing them in terms of game development? You know, where would you say, work, start here, work on this and focus on that if you want to get better and you want to make the next step? Yeah, that, that's easy. That's really easy. Um, speed. I'd be speed training, um, which I have uh, some great stuff that I'm doing right now, Mark III. Um, if some of the kids want to have a look at it, it's called Mark III Golf. It's on. Uh, you, you can find the guy, Mike Romitowski, on Facebook. It's all about rope speed training. It's It won't hurt you. It's, it's about uh, creating a, a, a speed motion through great uh, – um, sequencing um and then short game i mean because let's face it if you're hitting at 320 30 yards these days you're not going to hit more than the wedge nine iron into most holes so you know you're going to work 150 in and short game and putting i mean let's face it the, the long game is really gone in golf i mean how often do you see a kid hitting a four iron into a par four yeah par five par five maybe but not a par four um so so it, to me, um, being really efficient with the driver, and I mean efficient in speed and hitting as far as you can, and then learning to chip and putt, and obviously 100 yards in. I mean, and there's ways to be able to create. I have some really cool stuff uh, with pitching that I think is bulletproof once you get and, and, and work at it, and short game stuff, which I learned from, from obviously people. But that that's if I was teaching kids, that's what I'd be teaching them. Because at the end of the day is – if you're hitting at 285 yards, you're not going to compete at the highest level. You may win some tournaments. Don't get me wrong. There's tournaments out there that you can win on the PGA Tour hitting at 290. But everything's got to be clicking right. Whereas, you know, and, and I'll give you a little quick. Uh, I played the Masters, of, as I said, in 05. And I remember the second hole, I hit driver and I think a three-wood up near the green. And Tiger was 50 yards past where I was. And he hit a five-iron on the green. And then nine, 11, I hit four-iron and hit nine-iron. You can't compete. You, I mean, yeah. you can give yeah. up a few yards, but you can't give up 50 yards. I mean, it, especially on a golf course like Augusta. Um, so kids need to learn a bomb it. And, and that's just it. That's the game now. And it's not going to change. It's not going to go back. Yeah. No, no. They, they, they're becoming so much more athletic these days, as you say, with the training and, and that sort of stuff. And then just, yeah, uh, distance has taken over. So, um, for sure. And the kids are so big now, Jamie. The kids are big. Yeah. I don't know how big Lucas is, but most kids are over six foot now playing golf. It's crazy. It's, yeah. I mean, the kids are bigger. Mark, mental game, 
what are you what are you working on mental game wise? Is it, you know, do you, is it a divine process that you go through? Is it you know do you have you know, I, I believe you do some journaling? Um, do you do any meditation, anything like that? Is there any any things that you practice there? Mate, I, I stay focused through practice, and and I think I stay focused through uh, um, goal setting and writing things down. I, I don't do meditation. Maybe I should, but I, I, I've always believed in myself that if I do the work, I got that to fall back on. Now, that's just me. <laughs> Everybody's different. Um, probably more now I could benefit with talking to someone a little bit more about the mental side of the game. I've never tapped into it, to be honest. Um, I, I just, uh, I'd never felt that I, um, I ever felt into, I, I always had success when I was, somewhat success when I was in contention with tournaments. I think kids who don't are more prone to probably need more help because stuff distracts them because there's no way that you should go into a tournament if you're playing really well in the last round keep shooting 75. I mean, obviously, it's not your game. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, there's something stopping you from uh, – and, and I never had that. Um, I never I never really fell into that shooting a bad score to lose or, or this or that. Um, but I always believed that if I did the work that it would, it would pull me through. Um, I remember playing Henrik Stenson in the playoff and I beat him in, uh, in his hometown and, and, and I'd worked so hard and that was in 05. And um, I just remember going, well, he can't beat me. And it was funny, even though, you know, he did three putt to lose, but, but I just, I remember he's six foot four and I'm a little guy. And he, this, this guy can't beat me, you know, I'm just playing so well. And so I gained confidence through success, I believe. And, 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 and also with the work I'd done. But now I found later in my life that all the work that I'm doing is not, I, I don't have the same feeling. I'm probably not tapping into some things that I need to. So, you know, there's, there's definitely room for it the older I've gotten that I, I probably will seek something and see if I can clear some, some <laughs> brain waves now or something, you know, clear, clear some air. There's, just, there's so much muddled stuff in there, you know. I mean, I had some issues with my putting there for a few years and, you know, and I'll tell you, I had the yips. I mean, I couldn't get it in from four feet. And I mean that. I was like, I was getting anxiety over it. And I, I, you know, I never seeked any help, but I figured a way to get rid of them. And, you know, I, I've putted probably the last six months, the best I ever have. And, and that was just through telling myself and, and almost toughing through it. You know, it's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, and, and this is how I'm going to stop it. I, I, I developed some things with my eyes and, and, and some stuff, and it's been pretty good. That's great. Well, I know uh, I know a guy on this podcast that would be more than happy to help you uh, with any of your mental game stuff moving <laughs> forward, mate. I know we we tentatively tried to to hook up uh, a couple of years back in uh, in Vegas when I was at Summerlin during the summers. Yes, yeah, and, and we couldn't uh, we couldn't quite make it work, but. Um, no, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm always open to have a chat and see where I can provide some value. But, you know, one interesting thing you said about you don't do any meditation, and I think it's it's interesting because we all have a different, I suppose, understanding of meditation. You spoke about you're riding, you, you love your motorbikes and you ride a bike, and I think that is your form of meditation. You get on the bike and everything else just, you know, just gets pushed to the side and you have to be so present and so focused and so in the moment when you go on those rides and uh, – you know, I say that to all my clients, like meditation doesn't have to be the typical form of meditation. It can be something that you do and enjoy where your your mind is present to what you're doing. And yeah, for me, I think that's that's sometimes the best form of, motor, uh, of meditation because it's something you love doing. Meditation can be hard work for a lot of us, but, you know, taking your bike out for a ride for 30 minutes, that's something that you enjoy doing, but still has that meditative effect and uh and trains our brain to, to be present. So um, yeah, it's funny you say that because now that you say it that way, yeah, there's um, I do meditate a lot yeah. with different things. Like I can watch a whole TV show and not even I not even watched any of it. Yeah, I, I yeah. like I, I watched it, but I didn't see it because I was my mind was somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So no, that's great. Well, Jamie, I think we might leave. Uh, it's been an hour or so of Mark's time, and uh, Mark, really appreciate it, mate. Uh, just been great chatting, catching up with your stories and, and just yeah. all of the uh, different bits of value that you've dropped for us uh, that I'm sure that everyone will take a whole heap out of. Great to catch up with you after 
40, 30, 35 years or so. 35 years um, or so. That's mate, crazy, isn't it? You're looking, you're looking great. You're looking in great shape. Uh, we're both sporting a bit of facial hair there, so I like, yeah. I like that look. Uh, I've lost the hair on the head. You probably kept yours. It was always fantastic. Yeah, I got a little bit yeah, there. It was, always, it, was always, it was always fantastic. And uh, thanks for letting me reminisce a little bit about uh, our formative years. Uh, I still hold them very near and dear to my heart, and uh, I'm pretty sure you do as well. Uh, oh, no, no. I loved following following the journey, you know, all those wins, you know, it was always extra special for us, you know, having seen you uh, perform, you know, hometown. And uh, so just great to catch up with you again. Jamie, thank you as always to you for letting me eavesdrop into essentially your conversations with, um, you know, one of Australia's elite golfing athletes. Oh, my pleasure, Roscoe. It's, and as I said at the beginning, it's, uh, I just had a feeling that uh, with Mark, we, we could talk all day and uh, pre, he could provide value all day, which he, he's done. And I'm sure we'll get him on again, but uh Mark, we wish you all the best moving forward. Um, I know the listeners and the, and the, and the private Facebook group members um, and the new Mental Mastery Clubhouse website will be launching soon. Everyone's going to be keeping a keen eye and I have a feeling that there will be more trophies added to the collection uh, in, the, in the next few years, mate. So we wish you all the best and uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, guys. And, you know, I, I always – it's hard give, talking, you know. I mean, there's so much there's so much goes in my mind about golf and, and you know, I enjoy talking about it. And, and as I said, I'm always there for the kids and always there for anyone that needs help in, in, in this great game that we play. And, and it's been a pleasure talking to you guys for sure. Mark, thanks. Thank you for your time. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that and we'll see you next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to that podcast with Mark Hensby. What a great episode that was. It was so good to catch up with Mark and hear those stories. Jump over to mentalmastery.com.au. That is the new website that Jamie has just released. It's the membership site where you can get access to a lot of training. Jump over there, mentalmastery.com.au. You can actually even play the podcast through the mentalmastery.com.au site over there. Thanks for listening. We really do appreciate all of you listening, and we'll see you next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast.